For our scripture reading this morning, we turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, we begin reading at verse 44. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many therefore of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, this is an hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given him of my Father. From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, 
Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. In the light of that passage, we turn to the instruction of our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 29 as it continues its consideration of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Lord's Day 29 questions and answers 78 and 79. Do then the bread and wine become the very body and blood of Christ? Not at all. But as the water in baptism is not changed into the blood of Christ, neither is the washing away of sin itself, being only the sign and confirmation thereof appointed of God, so the bread in the Lord's Supper is not changed into the very body of Christ, though agreeably to the nature and properties of sacraments, it is called the body of Christ. Why then doth Christ call the body, the bread his body and the cup his blood or the new covenant in his blood and Paul the communion of the body and blood of Christ? Christ speaks thus not without great reason, namely, not only thereby to teach us that as bread and wine support this temporal life, so his crucified body and shed blood are the true meat and drink whereby our souls are fed to eternal life, but more especially by these visible signs and pledges to assure us that we are as really partakers of his true body and blood by the operation of the Holy Spirit as we receive by the mouths of our bodies these holy signs in remembrance of him. And that all his sufferings and obedience are as certainly ours as if we had in our own persons suffered and made satisfaction for our sins to God. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, not only have you considered the instruction of Lord's Day 28 as it, the Catechism began its treatment of the Lord's Supper, but last Sunday you were blessed to be able to partake of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and doing so in the light of that instruction and the instruction of 1 Corinthians 11 verses 23 through 29 which is part, the opening part of our Lord's Supper form. Today we consider the sacrament again. This time from the viewpoint of John 6 noting especially that which takes place in the administration of the sacrament as a means of grace. Nearly 2,000 years now, Jesus gathered in the upper room with his disciples to celebrate the last Passover. And he said they would not eat of that bread nor drink of that wine. He would not eat of that bread nor drink of that wine and Tell he should do so anew with his saints in the kingdom of heaven. 
And on that occasion, he instituted for his church his Holy Supper as a sacrament, an ordinance to be observed till he returns. So as you and I partake of that supper, we do so desiring to carry out the mandate Jesus gave us, this do in remembrance of me. And we do so recognizing that Jesus Christ himself and Jesus Christ alone is the true meat and drink of life eternal. So Jesus had said at Capernaum, according to John 6, verses 54 through 56, Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. And that's how you came to the supper last Sunday morning after properly examining yourselves, confessing and turning from your sins and finding your righteousness in our only Savior, Jesus Christ. And now, on the basis of those words of the Lord, we consider the instruction of Lord's Day 29. We do so under the theme, Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper. We notice concerning that presence that it is a spiritual presence, first of all, Secondly, that that spiritual presence provides us also spiritual nourishment. That'll be our second point this morning. But along with Christ's presence in the supper comes a spiritual requirement. And that we will cover in our third point this morning. Lord's Day 29 directs our attention to Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper. That's long been a matter of controversy and misunderstanding in the church. The historical controversy, which relates to the history also of our Heidelberg Catechism and its lengthy exposition of the Lord's Supper, calls our attention to the fact that there are four different views concerning Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper. The Roman Catholic Church teaches, as we shall consider more in Lord's Day 30, that Christ is present by the wonder of transubstantiation. That is, when the priest pronounces the blessing upon the bread and wine, that substance of bread and wine changes into the body the physical body and blood of Jesus Christ. And for that reason, those elements must be worshipped, bowed down to by those who approach the altar and kneel at the communion rail. Martin Luther and the churches that arose out of his instruction, the Lutheran branch of the Reformation as we refer to them, taught that Though the elements themselves do not change, 
Nevertheless, the natural, physical body of Christ is present in, with, and under the elements of bread and wine, so that as a person partakes of the sacrament, they eat the physical body and blood of Christ. That's the second view. The third view of the sacrament is that that is attributed to the Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli, and especially the followers of Zwingli, that insisted Christ is not present at all in the sacrament. The sacrament is simply a memorial feast by which we are called to remember what Christ did for us. Those three different views all differ from the fourth, the Reformed view of the Lord's Supper. The Reformed churches from the time of Calvin on have emphasized that the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is indeed a sacrament. There is a mysterious operation of the Holy Spirit that takes place in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We do not, in any sense of the word, eat or drink the physical body and blood of Christ with our natural mouths. Our senses don't lie to us. Last Sunday morning, when you partook of that piece of bread and that little bit of wine, your tongues did not lie to you. You were eating bread and drinking wine physically. But in this spiritual feast, we confess that we partake of the body and blood of Christ spiritually with the mouth of faith. And that's emphasized by the urgent calling that is given us to come prepared properly to partake of that holy sacrament. If we have simply a feast of memorial, what would be the big deal if things were not quite right with us? But we must partake of the body and blood of Christ. We do, we must, and we do so with the mouth of faith. Else, as we heard in the week prior to the Lord's Supper and the morning of, from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 28 and 29, we would profane the covenant of God and cause his wrath to be kindled against us. That's what we would do should we come to the table in our sin, bearing hatred in our heart or refusing to put away a single sin to which we cling, because then we cannot eat and drink in faith then we show that we don't discern the seriousness of sin nor the precious nature of the blood of Jesus that was shed for our, those very sins that we may no longer walk in them. But now we get to the instruction of Lord's A30. And the point is this morning that we must partake spiritually of this spiritual feast. So when we bear that in mind, 
we find at least a partial answer to a somewhat puzzling question. Why has there been such controversy concerning the sacrament? There are some doctrines which you would almost expect to provide controversy for the church. There are some truths of Scripture that run so against the grain, so to speak, of our human natures that we say it's no wonder there's such great opposition to this truth, even in the church. But why such controversy over the sacrament? And the answer to that question is that Satan himself understands the importance of the sacraments to the life of the church. Where the sacraments are not understood properly, they're easily profaned. And where they are profaned, God's wrath is kindled against the whole congregation. And Satan likes nothing more than to see the church suffering under the wrath of God for its refusal to walk in harmony with God's word. Let's remember the sacraments are appointed by Christ as a means of grace for the church. And therefore, if the sacraments are attacked or distorted or corrupted by impenitence, not only is the sacrament corrupted as a means of grace, the church is corrupted. And for that reason, we must understand the truth of the Lord's Supper as the Lord himself reveals its significance, and we must maintain that truth whenever we come to the table of the Lord. In the Lord's Supper, Christ is present with us in a threefold way. First, he's present in the bread and wine as signs of his broken body and shed blood. Secondly, he's present as the host of that supper distributing and presenting to us those elements of bread and wine that we might partake in remembrance of him. And then finally, he is present with his grace and Holy Spirit in the hearts of us, his people, assuring us by faith that we are indeed partakers of his, of his life and all his benefits. As we read in John 6, Jesus said to us, we must eat the bread of life. And then he says, I am the bread of life. He said in verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. In response to that, we find that the Jews therefore strove among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And then follow these words. Then Jesus said unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. 
He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. The very same language is used in the institution of the Lord's Supper as recorded in Mark 14, verses 22 through 24. And as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed it and brake it and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for you. It's because of that language that the question arises, how is Christ present in the Lord's Supper? If the words of Jesus are to be understood in the literal sense, as the Roman Catholic teach, and as the Lutherans also teach from a different point of view, then the disciples actually ate the flesh of Jesus and drank his blood even while he was bodily standing before them. But that's not the meaning, as is evident when you compare Scripture with Scripture. When Jesus stood before the Samaritan woman in John 4, he presented himself as the water of life, or the living water. Here in John 6, he says, I am the bread of life. The disciples recognized this as a common way of speech. It was a figure of speech. Jesus often used that form of speaking when he spoke of the spiritual and the heavenly. He said, for example, I am the good shepherd. When he said that, the disciples knew that he was using a figure pointing them to the wonderful truth that a shepherd in the hills of Galilee was a parable, demonstrating to them Christ's ministry among them and his care for his flock. They understood as well that Jesus was speaking to them in figurative language when he picked up that piece of bread, that loaf of bread, and said, this is my body. And the wine, this is my blood. At the same time, the disciples recognized, and we must understand that also this morning, that that figurative language that Jesus spoke pointed to a matter of great significance. Jesus himself is spiritually present in the Lord's Supper that the elements of the sacrament are signs of the body and blood of Christ, takes away nothing from the fact that Christ is present in the elements. Our Belgic Confession of Faith explains that very truth in Article 35. And I ask you to turn to that article a moment, Article 35 on page 52 in the back of the Psalter. And the article is lengthy, but I want to read a significant portion of it. Article 35 is the 
Belgian Confession's treatment of the Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ. We believe and confess that our Savior Jesus Christ did ordain and institute the sacrament of the Holy Supper to nourish and support those whom he hath already regenerated and incorporated into his family, which is his church. Now those who are regenerated have in them a twofold life. The one corporal, that is physical or bodily, and temporal, which they have from the first birth and is common to all men, the other spiritual and heavenly, which is given them in their second birth, which is affected by the word of the gospel in the communion of the body of Christ. And this life is not common, but is peculiar to God's elect. In like manner, God hath given us, for the support of the bodily and earthly life, earthly and common bread which is subservient thereto and is common to all men, even as life itself. But for the support of the spiritual and heavenly life which believers have, he hath sent a living bread which descended from heaven, namely Jesus Christ, who nourishes and strengthens the spiritual life of believers when they eat him. That is to say, when they apply and receive him by faith in the Spirit. Christ, that he might represent unto us this spiritual and heavenly bread, hath instituted an earthly and visible bread as a sacrament of his body and wine as a sacrament of his blood to testify by them unto us that as certainly as we receive and hold this sacrament in our hands and eat and drink the same with our mouths by which our life is afterwards nourished, we also do as certainly receive by faith, which is the hand and mouth of our soul, the true body and blood of Christ our Savior in our souls for the support of our spiritual life. Now as it is certain and beyond all doubt that Jesus Christ hath not enjoined to us the use of his sacraments in vain, so he works in us all that he represents to us by these holy signs, though the manner surpasses our understanding and cannot be comprehended by us as the operations of the Holy Spirit are hidden and incomprehensible. In the meantime, we err not when we say that what is eaten and drunk by us is the proper and natural body and the proper blood of Christ. But the manner of our partaking of the same is not by the mouth, but by the Spirit through faith. Thus then, though Christ always sits at the right hand of his Father in the heavens, Yet doth he not cease to make us partakers of himself by faith. This feast is a spiritual table at which Christ communicates himself with all his benefits to us and gives us there to enjoy both himself and the merits of his sufferings and death, nourishing, strengthening, 
and comforting our poor comfortless souls by the eating of his flesh, quickening and refreshing them by the drinking of his blood. And we'll stop there. So as that article explains, in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, the eyes of faith see Christ's body broken and his blood being shed as a complete atonement for all our sins. And with the mouth of faith, we eat and drink Christ unto life eternal. How necessary it is that we eat and drink Christ, beloved. It is most certainly true, as we read in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27, that whosoever shall eat of this bread and drink of this cup unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. That is to profane Christ and the covenant of God. We must be very careful we do not do that. And I don't speak now so much of our walk of life, although that is certainly implied. Surely, as we heard last Sunday and the previous, we may not come to the table of the Lord when our confession or walk is not in harmony with God's word. But I speak now of our approach to the sacrament as a sacrament. We must not come out of tradition or superstition. There is nothing but condemnation in eating and drinking the sacrament that way. But we must come spiritually to eat and drink Christ with the mouth of faith. But I must say more about that in my third point when I talk about our disposition in partaking of the Lord's Supper. The point here is that Christ is present, not physically, but he's very really present spiritually, sacramentally in the bread and wine of the Lord's table. That brings me to the second main point in our consideration of Christ's presence in the Holy Supper, and that is that because he is present, he provides for us a spiritual nourishment. I mentioned he's present in a threefold way. And the second way is that he's present as our host in the supper. Christ himself is present in our celebration of the Lord's Supper. He's present to administer the sacrament. That's an inseparable element of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. That means specifically that through the ministry of his word, the exalted Christ himself also distributes and presents to us the elements of bread and wine that we might partake in remembrance of him. Obviously, that's part of the mystery of the administration of the sacrament. After all, you see a man standing before you, and then you might regard it as mere detail that the minister reads the form and breaks the bread and pours out the wine, 
and that the elders serve the elements to the congregation and so on. But mere detail, it's not. Christ is our host in the administration of the sacrament. As we know from Scripture, Christ is present with us in his word. The sacrament can never stand alone. It always must accompany the preaching of the word. Standing with the word, the sacrament serves as a means of grace to nourish God's people, strengthening their faith. I think sometimes that that connection between the sacrament and preaching has not been emphasized enough. Certainly the preaching of the word may not take a lesser place when the Lord's Supper is administered. If we are concerned about the length of the service, we may do certain things to guard that length, such as singing fewer stanzas, keeping the congregational prayer shorter in that morning service, perhaps reading a shorter portion of scripture, But one thing we ought ought not to do is preach a lesser sermon. Never may the sacraments usurp the place of the word. Because the sacraments themselves, according to the command of Christ, supplement the word preached. And if the preaching doesn't mean much to us, then we're not prepared either to partake of the sacraments. There is no sacrament except in connection with the word preached. And that word of Christ comes to us in that preaching not only, but also in the administration of the sacrament. The word of God, the word of Christ makes the sacrament a spiritual reality. If Christ does not speak, If all we have is the word of a man or the partaking of bread and wine apart from the ministry of the word, there is no sacrament. Christ is not present. Let us pay attention to that when the sacrament is administered. When the minister says, this is my body, this do in remembrance of me, and so on, If merely the minister says that, that means nothing. But when he says that, as the office bearer of Christ, and therefore when Christ says that, through his servant, when Christ speaks his efficacious word to you, then you celebrate the Lord's Supper. Christ is our host in that sacrament. What a wonderful thing that is. Christ says to us, Come, my beloved, I show you my love. This is my body, which was broken for you. This is my blood, which was shed for you. Believe, eat and drink. To use an illustration... In the Lord's Supper, Christ the bridegroom presents his bride with an engagement ring. 
That's communion. We await his coming. But he's given us, he's given himself to us. The wedding feast is right now being prepared in, in heaven. And he says to us, his bride, as long as you cannot yet see me face to face and can only hear my word, I give you also this ring and believe and trust that I have so loved you that I gave myself to death for you. When we hear that word of Christ, not merely as we eat and drink bread and wine, but when we hear the voice of our bridegroom, then we respond. And by faith, we eat and drink. We eat and drink, yes, the signs of bread and wine. But with the mouth of faith, we eat and drink Christ. We eat and drink and digest spiritually the crucified and risen Christ in, in all the wonder of his salvation of us. And so you and I are spiritually nourished. What does that nourishment involve? The catechism explains it in the answer to the 79th question when it says that this body, that as bread and wine support this temporal life, so his crucified body and shed blood are the true meat and drink whereby our souls are fed to eternal life. Our physical bodies do not have life in themselves. Our physical bodies require spiritual, uh, require physical nourishment, being dependent entirely upon God. And as the the nourishment of our bodies is dependent upon nourishment that's in harmony with our bodies, so the nourishment for our soul is dependent upon nourishment that's in harmony with our spiritual life. Gasoline doesn't serve the nourishment of the body, does it? Food and drink serves the nourishment of the body. That eating and digesting is the God-ordained way for us to sustain our earthly life. That's a wonderful process. It goes far beyond our comprehension, even in the physical sense. But how much more wonderful is it that God has also seen fit to provide us with nourishment spiritually? After all, we have another life. Not only our physical and natural life, but the life of regeneration. The children of God have that regenerated life, life from above. That life is altogether special. It's not of this earth. It's not of our present nature. It's not of flesh and blood, nor of the will of flesh, but of God. That life is spiritual and heavenly. But also that life 
like our physical life, is not independent. It cannot exist by itself. Your spiritual life cannot possibly exist by itself. And the proof for that is abundant. When you look at those who have separated themselves from the church of the living God and from his appointed means of grace, there is definite deterioration in spiritual life. God has ordained that our spiritual life must be supplied, must be nourished must be nourished from outside of us. And just as our physical bodies require the nourishment of food and drink, so the spiritual organism requires spiritual food and drink in harmony with its life. And in eating and drinking that spiritual food, we must also assimilate, digest that food consciously. Life might be sustained by force feeding, but force feeding will never provide growth. We have to digest this spiritual food, assimilating it consciously so that it becomes part of our spiritual life. And we ourselves are bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. That spiritual food God has given us is Christ. Christ, as the host in the Lord's Supper, gives us himself. And he says, I am the bread of life. That's Christ. That's our spiritual food. Him we must eat and drink every day. Otherwise, we cannot live. And when I say we must eat and drink Christ, I refer to Christ in all his fullness. That means we must be nourished by his righteousness, the forgiveness of sins. We must be nourished by his wisdom, his knowledge, his holiness, his love, his light. Every day we must have the knowledge of God in Jesus Christ. Otherwise we cannot walk in his light. Otherwise we cannot live in holiness before him. Always, day by day, we must eat and drink Christ, the Christ of the Scriptures. You recognize, don't you, that we eat and drink by faith. Faith, as our Belgic Confession said, is the hand and mouth of the soul. But the point this morning is that in the Lord's Supper, You have that Christ in that supper as we partake by faith. That risen Lord Jesus is present with his grace and spirit in the hearts of his people. Assuring us by faith that we are indeed partakers of him and all his benefits. And so that supper of the Lord becomes for us a spiritual feast in which we partake of the riches and bounties of our salvation and are prepared to to stand before our Lord, filling our hearts with 
comfort and life and joy and praise. In the Holy Supper, we have the foretaste of the wedding feast of the Lamb. What a blessing to be nourished by Christ. But finally, we must not forget that to receive such spiritual nourishment at Christ's Supper requires also a spiritual disposition. It's required that we come with a spiritual disposition, a spiritual attitude, ready to appear in the presence of God, in the fellowship of Jesus Christ. It's not necessary to say much about this this morning. That was covered in preparatory and again in the reading of of the form last Sunday morning. But let's understand the signs of the Lord's Supper are holy signs. And therefore the spiritual disposition required of us in partaking of this supper is the disposition of spiritual humility. No one else but the regenerated, penitent sinner may partake of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. When Jesus instituted his supper, Judas Iscariot had to be dismissed. That dismissal was not merely because he was a sinner. The sinful natures of the other disciples are also well documented. Judas Iscariot had to be dismissed because of his impenitence for his sin, because he would carry his sin with him, and Jesus knew Judas Iscariot. The same holds true today with the Holy Supper of the Lord. An impenitent man or woman may not partake. That man or woman might partake, Scripture warns us that that is to his or her condemnation and to the church's condemnation if they are aware of that impenitence and still permit that person to come. But a person really cannot partake of the flesh and blood of Christ to his eternal life and nourishment unless he comes with the disposition of humility in sorrow for his sins, fleeing from them to Christ, the only Savior. That means we must be spiritually hungry. We aren't always so hungry. People of God, we're still sinful. And our sinful flesh sometimes harbors animosity, and malice, and envy, and corruption of all kinds, which stifles our hunger for Christ. Sometimes we can deceive ourselves and tell us that all is well, but we're not hungry for Christ. If our carnal mind dominates us, we're not hungry. That's why we also have preparatory. We must hear that word of God. Walk in my ways. 
put off the old man and put on the new. Then you will hunger and thirst and be nourished at the Lord's table. For you and me who know and confess and turn from our sins, who hunger and thirst after righteousness and long for the fellowship of our Savior, Christ comes to us in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. He comes to you, beloved. He says, eat, drink, remember, and believe. Amen. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of the wonder that thou wouldst have fellowship with us and that thou hast given us Jesus Christ to save us by his great death on the cross and imputing his righteousness to us. And we pray that as we contemplate the sacrament thou hast instituted, the Holy Supper of our Lord, that whenever we stand before that sacrament, whenever we are called to partake thereof, we might do so with the hand and mouth of faith, laying hold of our faithful Savior, in whom we have life, and in whose name we pray, amen.